Friends, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to be many places in Scripture this morning, but we'll primarily start in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The series that we're having for our summer series is on being sent. Jesus says in John 20, verse 21, and we don't normally do this, but let's read this out loud together. This is our theme verse for our summer series on the apostles, the 12. Let's read it together, starting with John 20, 21. All together, John 20, 21, again, Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You see those 12 standing on the shore of the lake in northern Israel there in Galilee. As the Father sent Jesus, He sent them. As we saw last week, among the many, the multitude of disciples, mathetes, followers, learners of Jesus, midway through His about three-year public ministry, Jesus publicly called aside and designated as apostles, appointed to a mission, these 12. Apostles, the sent ones. He called them to be disciples, but disciples with a mission, disciples who make disciples. And not just any disciples, disciples who make disciples, who in turn make disciples, who in turn make disciples. And it continues to this very day. You and I are part of God's plan, this plan that he began with. As John MacArthur reminded us in his sermon series in his book, 12 Ordinary Men, this was plan A. God didn't have a plan B for reaching this lost world. It was disciples, followers of Jesus, who in turn lead others to know Jesus personally and become his followers and lead others to know Jesus personally as their Savior and their Lord. We are part of that process. And I'm convinced somewhere along the way, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, they told somebody who told somebody who wrote a book read by somebody else who preached the sermon on the radio that touched the heart of somebody else and it came all the way down, perhaps through a Sunday school or mom or dad or a praying grandparent, that message came directly to you. This is your story as well. And throughout the summer, we're going to be looking at the lives of these ordinary people that Jesus chose, not for their profound gifts, because we see they had as many weaknesses as strengths. They were like us in all ways. And yet, by the grace of God, full of His Spirit, they carried out that mission. And it goes on to this very day the sent ones. Today's message, we're going to begin with the very first. He's known in church history as the first called disciple. I call today's message, come and see, because these are the words that this disciple and another unnamed disciple, very likely it was the the author of the gospel of John, John himself, who keeps himself anonymous when he's writing the gospel and he is part of the story. He doesn't refer to himself by name. He's a very humble man as he wrote that gospel in his older years, very different from the fiery young man that he began. But this is Jesus' invitation. And it's an invitation that is used in turn by his followers and needs to be used by God's people to this very day. 
Come and see. Who is the first? Maybe not the first in leadership or in gifting, but the first called, the first apostle that we will dwell with and walk with today and Lord willing learn from? It's Andrew. Andrew, the first called by Jesus. Many of us over the years reading books, hearing sermons, we pick up a little bit of the original language of the New Testament. Not just Greek, because there's classical Greek that you read, Plato, Aristotle, even back to Homer and his great epics. But this was common Greek, marketplace Greek, that the Bible was written in the New Testament. We call it Koine Greek. And it was not as fancy Greek. It has a lot of borrowed words. It's kind of a rough and tumble language. But all of these people with their various languages crossing paths in around the Mediterranean during the time of the Roman Empire, this was a language that many of them spoke, if not as their first language, as their second language, the language they used as they went to the market. In that language, we know a number of words from many sermons over the years. We know love, the love of God, agapao, Love of man, phileo. We know a lot of words like the comforter. Remember that wonderful word? Jesus says, I'm sending you another helper. We know that word, paraclete. I love that word. Comes alongside. That's what it speaks of. A similar sounding word to paraclete, though, is used in the early church throughout history to refer to Andrew, and they call him the protoclete, protocletos. The protoclete means the first called, Andrew. Not as much better known brother Peter, Andrew, the first called by Jesus. Why? Why not the apostle of love, John, one of the sons of thunder, James? Why not Peter, the big personality, the great gifted leader Peter? No, it's Andrew. We'll see why today. Andrew. First, that name always stops me. Andrew, are you kidding me? As we spoke last week, this being uh, Jesus' disciples, most of them hail from northern Israel, the less cosmopolitan, not the center of biblical uh, scholarship by any means. In fact, compared to the scribes, the Pharisees the, of, of Jerusalem, these men were called unschooled. didn't mean they couldn't read or write. It just meant that they were not part of the great religious Pharisaic schools down in, in Jerusalem. They weren't rabbinic scholars that could debate the small nuances of the Old Testament. Compared to those men, Jesus' followers were uneducated compared to them. About the only one we know for sure that was from the south, from way down in Judea, because that's what his last name was, was Judas, Iscariot. As we'll see him one of the Sundays, Iscariot means the man from Kerioth. And in the Old Testament, we heard that that village was down in Judah. But when we come to Andrew, there's something different. It's, it's as if the old game, the old song from Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. In fact, when I look at the 12, I see two things that don't belong. Andrew and Philip. What is up with those guys? Why? Because everybody else has the great Jewish names. Peter, well, his true name is Simon. Simeon, 
one of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. You see James. Well, we know every time you see James come to us through Greek and then Spanish into English, it's really Jacob. In Greek, it's Yakabu. I love that. So we have Jacob's, we have Jonah's, great sailor from the Old Testament. Uh, you know, many of the fishermen were named Jonah, translated to us as John's. We see all of these Hebrew names except two, Andrew and Philip. Those aren't Old Testament names. Those aren't Old Testament characters. Those are Greek names, Hellenistic names. Now, why would one of the Jewish men from northern Israel have a Greek name? Not one, but two of these men who live there. In fact, two are from the same hometown, Andrew and Philip. And Peter were all told that they come from the Galilean village of Bethsaida. Archaeologically, I would like to like to take you and show you the ruins of Bethsaida, but we don't know for sure where it was. We just don't. It's been lost to us through history. We find there's a couple pretty good candidates, but nobody knows for sure where Bethsaida is. But what we know from excavating and studying the history and the remains of those times is that it was a very Hellenistic, that is Greek, because Helen, Helena means Greek. It's a very Hellenistic area. Remember, they were speaking Aramaic when they came back from captivity. They don't, didn't speak Hebrew as their first language anymore. They retained that as the language of religion. The priests could speak Hebrew, but the average people picked up the language of Babylon and much of the Middle East. Aramaic was the common language between the nations, and that's what they usually spoke when they came back. Until about 300 B.C., when Alexander the Great conquered the known world and brought Greek language and culture as a layer over everything. So much so that in the same family we see two sons, Peter, known to us as Simon as well, with a Jewish name, and then Andrew with a Greek name. It just shows you how Greek culture was so prevalent that they could speak. Probably Jesus and his disciples spoke Aramaic and Greek interchangeably as they went through their daily life and did business. In fact, in, though the New Testament's written in Greek, we often see Jesus' words taken directly from Aramaic. Like he says, don't call your brother a fool. He uses the Aramaic word, reka. We see those words. Aramaic words quoting Jesus directly, but we also know from the structure of the writing that certain things only made sense if Jesus spoke Greek. So very likely, they spoke both languages interchangeably. Andrew, his name, it's amazing. In Greek, it's Andreas. That's his true name. That's probably the name he went by, Andreas. And what does it mean? It comes from the root word andros, or amir, which means man. Believe it or not, Andrew's name meant manly man. <laughs> it meant, I don't know what, brawny, strong. It could mean conqueror, courageous. Can you imagine giving a little baby that? I don't know why you would. Maybe he was, maybe he was a premature baby and had these little skinny stick arms and legs and just out of hopefulness that he was going to flourish one day, mom and dad said, let's name him manly man, Andreas. But that was his name. Well, it suited him because we know he was a fisherman. Though he and Peter and Philip began in Bethsaida, 
Later in life, they lived in Capernaum, right on the shore of the lake in the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they were fishermen, net fishermen, which was a hard job, a physical job. So this was the manly man, Andrew, a fisherman from Galilee. And yet when we see him as the protoclete, the first called, he is not in Galilee. He is down in the Judean desert, the other side of the River Jordan, and he's a follower. He's a mathetes. He's a disciple, not of Jesus, but of the forerunner, the last and greatest prophet, John the Baptist. John the baptizer, the forerunner who is going to point out the Messiah. Not only do we see Andrew down there left his nets behind to follow down and seek out John the Baptist, but it seems a whole contingent of Galileans. We see John and Andrew and Philip and Peter, all of these men, whether they took a sabbatical or went on a journey, left their wives and their jobs and everything behind to go to the desert, likely were baptized, the baptism of repentance, and became followers of John the Baptist. They had left things behind and they were now following, which tells me, though uh, they're often painted as these rough, unruly men, I see them as people who were godly and looking for God. Not only for God, but looking for the Messiah. They were suffering under the Roman oppression and they wanted to find the Messiah. That's why they followed John the Baptist because he was making a straight way for the coming Messiah there in the desert. That sets the stage for John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we begin reading in verse 32. John the Baptist just previously uh, earlier, some days earlier, had seen Jesus coming toward them and had shouted out to his disciples that Jesus was the Lamb of God. This is a following incident. Verse 32, Then John gave this testimony, because this is after Jesus' baptism. He refers to it. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. That's a powerful testimony. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. Did you get that? If he's there with only two of his followers, these were probably very close followers. We would call them an inner circle follower of John the Baptist. They had to be tough guys because John, he lived in the desert. He was ascetic. He wore camel hair, a leather belt, ate wild honey and locusts for food. They were roughing it. That was not, this was not uh, modern camping or glamping or fifth wheel camping. This was roughing it in the desert. He's there with two of his disciples the next day. When he saw, verse 36, when he saw Jesus passing by and said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went 
and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. This was the introduction of Andrew because we're told in the next verse that one of the two disciples, followers of John the Baptist, who in turn left him behind to follow Jesus and spent the day learning from him was Andrew. Andrew, the protocletos, the first called. The other one, who's not named, very likely was the Apostle John who wrote this account in the Gospel of John. Why? Because he remembers all the details. He even tells you the time of day, the 10th hour, which uh, if they start counting uh, from 6 a.m., it's the afternoon already. So they go to where Jesus was staying down there, Jesus following his baptism, where he was camping out. Was he in an inn, staying in a house, sleeping in the desert? We don't know, but he asked them to come, follow him, and they stayed with him and learned from him throughout the day. It's an amazing thing. These men who had left everything behind, followed John the Baptist, now have heard that this was the Lamb of God, the very Son of God, the Messiah. They go, spending time with Jesus, hearing His words, seeing Him, have now convinced them He is the Christ, the Messiah. So what does Andrew do with that bombshell information? Andrew shared Jesus with Peter. Andrew shares Jesus with Peter. The first thing he does with Jesus, the Messiah, is not to keep him to himself, but take him to his brother. Now, Peter and Andrew, you know, some people are, 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 are taking their understanding or are learning more about Peter and Andrew's relationship uh, through Scripture. Uh, many people are enjoying the mini-series, The Chosen, and you see Peter, this rough-and-tumble character, and Andrew, sort of a foil to him, uh, the level-headed one. Uh, that's how Scripture sort of portrays them as well. Peter is over the top. There's just no other way to put it. Peter is a big personality. That's being kind. That's being kind. When somebody's a big personality, that's a nice way of saying they're kind of a jerk. You know, you, you, they, they take up all the air in the room. They, they suck all the oxygen out. There's nothing left for anybody else. Peter is loud and bombastic. <coughs> He's a natural leader. And Andrew always seems to be second place to Peter. In fact, it seems very likely that Peter was the older brother. You see that dynamic here? How many of you, I'm just curious, how many have older brothers? Oh, most of you. How many don't, but you're the older brother? Anyone? Yeah, I knew Stephen. I was watching you especially. <laughs> I'm thinking of older brothers. Because there's that dynamic. I had an older brother that I love dearly. I would like to introduce him to you, but he went home to be with the Lord at just 20 years old, a young married man just starting life, and it was cut short so quickly. But I remember when he was my big brother, I had no greater defender on the playground. Oh, my older brother loved to lay a whooping on me, but nobody else better lay a finger on me or he would come after me. That was an incredible dynamic. And though we fought like cats and dogs, by the end of his life, we were best of friends. 
we were inseparable. He was a wonderful guy. I remember the last time I saw him uh, on the very day that he died in an accident. I'll never forget it. We never said any words. He drove by and just rolled down his window and just smiled at me. And I nodded at him, and that was the last we saw him. I look forward to seeing him again in heaven one day. But big brothers, man, it's hard to be a little brother. And it couldn't have been easy for Andrew. Peter had to be first in everything. In fact, Scripture tells us that Peter and Andrew shared the same home, but it's called Peter's home. Peter and Andrew were in business together, but when Jesus gets in the boat, it's Peter's boat. Peter's house, Peter's boat, Andrew just gets to share everything. So here's the chance. If Andrew was like me, the story would turn out very different because there's a thing called sibling rivalry. And though big brother, big sister, they may have everything else, including being older or whatever, their driver's license before you, they have all that, and you finally find something great, you're going to keep it to yourself. It's going to be yours. Yeah, Peter, keep following John the Baptist. <laughs> I, I, go ahead. Yeah, stay down by the River Jordan. I'm going to follow this other guy. Who? No, you don't need to know about him. That's normal human nature. You keep this good thing for yourself, especially when it's a brother who is so overpowering in his personality. And yet, that's not Andrew. Andrew was made of different stuff. In fact, better stuff. In fact, though we see the failures of the apostles and their lack of faith throughout the stories, we never see Andrew do that. I'm sure he did. He followed the group. He was When Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, slow to learn, he was talking to Andrew as well as everybody else. But Andrew is always referred to in a positive way in Scripture. In a positive way. And here, I think, is his greatest moment. He has met the Lord, and the first thing he wants to see is his loved ones meet Jesus too. And he knows his brother Peter is looking for the Messiah and has a heart for the Lord just like he does, that he is a godly man searching for the Christ. And so Andrew goes to him and tells him, John chapter 1, verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. He didn't only tell him, he took him to Jesus. Friends, I don't know how in your walk of faith, everyone's story, how you came to know Jesus. I was taken to Him. As a child, I was taken to church. I was taken to Sunday school. I was always taken. And when that dark night of the soul came and I knew I was a sinner and I didn't know what to do, I was led to Christ by my mother. You see the language? I was taken to Jesus. People come to churches for many different reasons. It's not usually the scintillating uh, pulpiteer up front. It's almost always somebody you know and trust, and you know they care about you, and they care enough 
to invite you to church. It's a scary thing. Nobody wants to be rejected or thought weird or something. But they have found life in Jesus. They found forgiveness of sin and new life in Christ and hope of eternity, and they don't want to keep it to themselves. They care about you, and they invite you. That's playing your role as a sent one, as a missionary. Andrew is often called the first missionary. When the Billy Graham Crusades come to town, before they come, they begin Operation Andrew, where people make a list of people in their lives who they don't know that know Jesus, and they pray for them, and they invite them. They show love by inviting them to hear the good news of the gospel. Andrew did one better. He took Peter to Jesus. Now, some of you may say, oh, that's perfect. I would do the same thing. I love my family. I want my family to know the Lord. And if your family knows the Lord, God bless you. But so many of us have family members and those we care about who don't yet know Jesus as their personal Savior. And that's a painful thing. They take up a lot of time of our prayers and and our concern. We pray for them and we love them. And we just don't know how best to share Jesus with them. Jesus can relate to that. We often forget that during his public ministry, Jesus was rejected by his own brothers. His brothers. (laughs) Andrew loved Peter. They were on the same page faith-wise and he went to him. Jesus' own brothers. Can you imagine having an older brother like Jesus? (laughs) Nobody could live up to that. One of my passages that I'm always amazed at are Jesus' brothers mocking him and having a little fun at his expense. It's recorded for us in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Jesus' brothers are are gently teasing him about going up to the Passover. Oh, you're going to be a big-time preacher. You better go to the Passover. Verse 2, But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here up in Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. And that had to hurt. Jesus' mother and father knew who he was. They were first-hand witnesses that first Christmas, but his younger brothers and sisters, different. They didn't see that. They saw Jesus and knew him, and nothing he would do would counteract that, but it's hard to accept. A prophet has no honor in their hometown, much less in their own family sometime. And yet Scripture says, one of Jesus' resurrection appearances was to his own brother. I'm amazed by that. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Jesus 
resurrection appearances begin with those close to him in faith. But he never forgets his earthly family. When he's appeared to all of these believers and fulfilled the hope they have in him, he appears to James, the leader of his brothers and sisters, probably the oldest remaining sibling. James not only believes Jesus, but he becomes a pillar of the early church. James the just, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Jesus didn't forget his family. It's hard, but he didn't forget them. First Timothy, we often think of First Timothy chapter 5 as speaking of putting food on the table. And that's part of it. But as Paul writing to Timothy says this, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's not only physical food, friends. That's spiritual food as well. We need to care about them, body, soul, and spirit, and provide for them. Now, parents, grandparents, we can't make anyone believe anything. All we can do is to be faithful, to take them to Jesus, to give them every opportunity and to pray for them and to love them and to be an example. And yet everyone comes to the Lord on their own, putting their faith in Him or denying Him. Andrew, though, he's our example. The first missionary... But that first mission was to home, not foreign shores. It was to home. It was to Peter. Andrew not only loved his family, but he had those special eyes that we need in the church of Jesus today. Andrew had eyes for the overlooked. (laughs) Andrew could see potential in people in the small things that other people would rush right by. As John mentioned during prayer time today, Daily Bread talks about Jesus saying, allow the little children to come to me. The context of that verse is that the disciples were shooing away parents with their children. They just wanted the kids to be blessed by Jesus. And they said, no, no, they're insignificant. They're not to bother the teacher. Don't bother the rabbi with these little kids. That wouldn't have been Andrew. I'm sure he's not mentioned by name, but I can't imagine him when I see him everywhere else, him pushing people away. Because every time I see Andrew in Scripture, he is bringing someone to Jesus. We know the story. (laughs) Jesus, after being incommunicado in prayer and so forth for some time, he's out in public again. And the crowds around the Galilee flock to him, multitudes by the thousands And they're in a distant area and they're overwhelmed and it's getting late in the day and the people are hungry and they have to walk back to their homes and villages on foot. And some of them might not make it. And so the disciples are worried and they're saying, Jesus, get rid of these people before dark. They got to get home. They got to get something to eat. And Jesus, to test and grow their faith, says, well, why don't you guys provide them some food to eat? And then he throws a test Philip's way. We'll see that in weeks ahead. Asks Philip, what do you think, Philip? He tests him. And Philip fails the test. Standing there, nobody knowing what to do, Andrew steps in. Andrew steps in. 
Andrew in John chapter 6, verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? (laughs) Even Andrew had to admit, it's not much. But everybody else would have been embarrassed. You know, why would he offer this boy's lunch? I've often thought about that. It's not like he was walking along and saw this little kid's lunch and grabbed it from him and ran to Jesus. No. (laughs) The little boy obviously offered it. Can you imagine? That food that his mama had packed him in the morning, he wanted to give it to Jesus. Everybody else would ignore him beneath their their interest. (laughs) But Andrew had eyes for the overlooked even the children. He hears the little boy's offer, takes him to Jesus. Just as he took Peter to Jesus, he takes the little boy to Jesus with his lunch and makes the offer on his behalf. Though he doesn't know what can do it, but as the old song says, little is much when God is in it. Friends, have eyes for the small, the overlooked, the insignificant. And sometimes you'll sell yourself as a servant of God so short. I don't have these gifts. I don't have those gifts. I can't invite this person. I can't do this. Little is much when God is in it. Let God use you. He called you. He chose you for a reason. And when you add Jesus to any situation, it's enough. It's more than enough. You have enough. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminded us Christians, before we get too up and proud and get up on our hind legs, Paul says, remember who you guys are. God doesn't pick the high flyers, the gifted, the wonderful people in the eyes of the world. He tends to go with ordinary people who need to live by faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. That plan of God's ordinary people sharing the good news with other ordinary people, we don't boast. It's Jesus at work in us and through us. We need to have eyes for the small and the overlooked and the outsiders as well. And in doing that, we don't build walls, we build bridges. Andrew was a bridge to Jesus throughout Scripture. His offer, his invitation, always took people straight to Jesus. Again, in the Gospel of John, Andrew shows up in chapter 12. It's the hustle and the bustle of the Passover where Jerusalem's population would explode from normally big city for those days, but not to us, normally about 50,000. 
And it would get up into the hundreds of thousands during the Passover with all the pilgrims coming to town. And Jesus would be bombarded by requests. Strangely, in John 12, some Greek people, not just Hellenized Jews, but actual Greek people, they want an audience with Jesus. So who do they seek out among the 12, the ones with the Greek names? the ones that obviously could understand them and connect with them. It says in verse 20 of John 12, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip. Wonderful name, Philip. The Greek name means uh, horse lover. comes from uh, phileo, to love. Hippos, horses. Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, We would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. (laughs) I find that fascinating. Philip, Greeks come to him. Uh, Jesus, remember at one point, he sent them only to Jews. Don't go to the Gentiles. He sent them two by two to the villages of Galilee. And yet now the Greeks, the The greater world, the foreign mission world is coming to him. And Philip doesn't want to make a decision. What does he do? I'll talk to Andrew. Andrew is bold. He always takes people to Jesus. So Philip goes to Andreas, another Greek name, and he says, we're taking these people to Jesus. They take them to Jesus. Not only do I see Andrew as the first missionary in Scripture, he's the first in foreign missions too. Would his big brother Peter have done that? Boy, it took a vision from heaven, the, the, the great cloth from heaven full of unclean animals to convince Peter to set foot in a Gentile home. I don't know if he would have done this. Philip knew Andrew's heart. He had a heart for people. And his life was a bridge to Jesus. A bridge Now, how could he do that, a man with that heart? Here's an interesting thing, and we're almost at the end. Bear with me. In Mark chapter 13, remember our Gospel of Mark Mark series? Chapter 13 is the end times teaching of Jesus. He's been to the festival. He's seen the beautiful wonder of the world, the temple on the Temple Mount. And the disciples say, oh, look at these huge stones, 100-ton stones. Jesus said, the time's coming soon. One stone won't be on top of the other. Then he crosses the Kidron Valley. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple looking at it. And this is what it says in verse 3 of Mark 13. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when... Will these things happen? And what will be the sign when they are all about to be fulfilled? The inner circle of Jesus is with him and asks that question, not the twelve. We see time and again an inner circle. It's generally listed as Peter, James, and John. But oftentimes as well, we see Andrew included. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. But James and John, the brothers, are connected It seems it should be Peter, Andrew, James, John, but Andrew takes the back seat, as he always does. Of these four individuals, I dare say you would love to be friends with Andrew. Peter, James, John, at that time, 
Not so much. The apostle of love was known by Jesus by the nickname of the sons of thunder because they wanted to call down fire and incinerate whole villages of people, ethnically cleanse Samaria. They were a tough bunch. If I uncharitably called Peter a bit of a jerk earlier, I think James and John would probably fit in that same category. They were tough guys. They were bold. They were type A personalities. But not Andrew. Andrew always reached out and took people to Jesus. So I want not only Andrew's eyes, I I want Andrew's heart. I want Andrew's attitude as well. Friends, we need the attitude of Andrew, willing not only to see people in need, but bold enough to take them to Jesus. Peter, years later, old, loud Peter, time has taught him wisdom. He's just a gentler person, a more understanding, less impulsive person by the time he writes the epistles of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, it's as if he's describing his little brother. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, big brother Peter writes this. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I don't think Peter's writing about himself. (laughs) I think Peter gave people plenty of reason to be upset with Christians, Christ followers. The gentleness and respect, that's got Andrew's fingerprints all over it. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. A wonderful Scotsman wrote the Barclay Bible commentary set that was so popular when I was a boy. William Barclay, I have a quote from him I'd like to show you at this time. Speaking of the attitude of the Andrews among us, Barclay wrote, More people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. (laughs) That's coming from a theologian who knows that one kind Andrew will change a person's heart where all of his scholarship will fall flat. May we be Andrews today. Each week I'll try to touch base briefly at the end on what happened. If I was my fellow Oki Paul Harvey, I'd say, what's the rest of the story with Andrew? We have to rely on early church historians, and we know they're not always reliable, but the various stories of Andrews, the legends and apocryphal teachings, all have similar streams to them that we can uh, learn from. The next slide shows Andrew at the end of his life. Andrew, he went north, it seems. He left his brother behind, the apostolic band, when persecution scattered them, and we're told that he shared the good news of Jesus, probably not on the large stage, because we never see in Scripture Andrew preaching to large crowds. He was more a one-on-one evangelist. But he took the good news of Jesus 
as far north as Scythia, which is on the shore of the Black Sea, and he is honored today as one of the patron saints of Russia. But that's not what it, where his life ended. All the authorities agree that Andrew came back to the Mediterranean in, and in Achaia, which was southern Greece, he led a woman to Christ. And she was the wife of a Roman official who did not take kindly to it. And he had Andrew crucified. Andrew was crucified on a saltire cross, which to us would be a great wooden letter X. And he didn't nail him to the cross. He wanted him to suffer more. So he tied his hands and legs to the cross and let him rot. And he hung there in pain for days. But the historians say that rather than quieting him, as the people came to gaze upon his suffering, he used it as an opportunity to share Jesus. With his last words, he was taking people to Jesus. Today, when you see the Union Jack, which has all the flags of the British Empire, one of them is the cross of St. Andrew, which we see on the Scottish flag as well. Makes sense now. If that's the cross of St. Andrew, because that X is actually the saltier cross that Andrew gave his life on. We still see the fingerprints of Andrew around us today. But by God's grace... We'll see them in our own hearts and in the lives of our churches and our people. As the worship team joins me on the platform for our closing song, let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, He was in the background. And compared to Peter, James, and John, He seemed unimportant. And yet, Lord... He was the first called. You knew that for Peter to come and play his role, that he needed someone he loved and trusted to invite him. And Lord, I think of all the people in our web of relationships, people that cross our path every day, that in their life we can potentially play the role of Andrew. Lord, give us Andrew's eyes. Give us his heart. Give us his gentle, respectful attitude. Give us his courage to invite, to ask people to come and see. Lord, that courage took Andrew to a cross. And yet, Lord, today he is with you in heaven. And his name will be inscribed on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. An ordinary man, humble man, a man who loved, a man who invited. Lord, touch our hearts with his life. Give us eyes to see him and to follow in his steps as he follows Jesus. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.